Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for your word. Thank you for the truth of it. Thank you that it is worthy to align our lives with and it can be trusted. And I pray today as we dive into what could be quite a difficult subject, God, open our hearts. God, open our minds. Help us to be receptive and sensitive. God, help us to put aside our own preconceptions and ideas. Just lay them aside for a moment. And I pray, Holy Spirit, you would speak to each of us. Highlight the things that we need to hear today as we submit to the truth of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's been quite a cool journey, and today we wrap up an eight-part series on the Beatitudes, the opening passage of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, where he declares eight different groups of people to be blessed. Now, the very word Beatitude refers to a state of joy linked to being or feeling blessed, and I'm not sure if you came into the series with a different idea on what it meant to be blessed than you might hold now, but I certainly did. Jesus makes it really clear that while he does want us to be happy and fulfilled and to live out of abundance, we sometimes find those treasures in places we least expect. We find them when we're lowly in spirit and realize our need for him. We find them when we mourn the loss of our condition, when we realize that sin robs away from us God's best and in our own efforts, we can't possibly work our way out of that place. We find it in unreserved surrender. When we live like Jesus, we live capable, powerful, and gifted, and yet in complete submission to our master. We find it as we hunger and thirst for righteousness. When our hearts yearn to be more like Jesus and we diligently seek him, God promises that we would be filled, and in that filling, we are blessed. We find it when we adopt the character of God, and we extend mercy to others. When in response to the mercy that we've been shown, we choose ourselves to withhold judgment and penalty from others who might deserve it. It's like we are blessed when we get to treat other people the way God treats us and experience what that's like. We find it when we begin to align our lives to be morally right and commendable among others. When we have pure motives and live our lives with integrity. See, when our heart has that motivation, we're better able to see God in our lives. We see the work of His hand and it leaves us feeling blessed. We find it when we commit ourselves to fighting for unity and peace. When we're patient with others and we're willing to engage in difficult conversations, that can sometimes be really hard. Conversations that sharpen one another, conversations that encourage one another and believe the best in one another. This requires faith and boldness, and it can feel so countercultural. When we live this way, it's countercultural, and it can have us feeling like outcasts. But at the end of the day, that is actually what God asks of us. Not to be weirdos and just act different for the sake of acting different, but to actually live a life that represents the kingdom for which we are citizens. Yes, we are here in this place at this time, and that's no mistake. But this is not our final destination. And the ideas that float around us in society are not the authority on how you and I are meant to be living our life. I think this is what Jesus is alluding to when he's standing before Pilate about to be sentenced and he says this in John 18, 36. He says, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is not of this world. This is interesting, right? The Beatitudes open up with this. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit and realize their need for him, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then there's some other promises like inheriting the earth, being shown mercy and seeing God. And then we get to the eighth and the last beatitude. And in Matthew 5 verse 10, it reads, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Right at the start, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Right at the end, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus bookends this passage with this powerful reminder that when we live our lives for the kingdom of heaven, we become established there. It's the opening promise and it's the closing promise. 
I'm not sure if you've noticed as we've journeyed through this series, and I don't know how many of the eight weeks you've been present for, but it's kind of like they sit as different rungs on a ladder. Each one builds upon the one that comes before it. It starts on the bottom rung of the ladder where we're lowly in spirit and we realize our need for God. And then we begin to mourn over sin and realize its destruction. From there, you begin to live humbly and surrender to God. From that place, you develop a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. You begin to pursue the things of God. Well, you can now look beyond yourself to others. You become self-aware of the mercy that you've received and you begin to love people better. By now, your heart is becoming cleansed and pure. You see things differently and desire to live a life honoring of the God that saved you. You become firm and standing on the promises of God. Your heart is becoming pure. Jesus then says from that place, go and make peace, but not peace as we know it, peace with God and peace with others from a foundation of prayer. Like you've actually got to be willing to lovingly confront people and challenge people, becoming uncompromising on the promises of God. Well, by now we've climbed seven rungs of the ladder and we're pretty high up. What do you think is going to happen to a person that's living that life? How do you think the society might respond to someone who becomes unapologetically committed to Christ? Someone who lives to biblical principles and isn't willing to sit back idly and just pretend like everything's okay. Let me tell you what happens to a person that lives that way. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The final step on the ladder is persecution. Woo! Pumped. We were hoping it was a round of applause or a crunchy bar at the top or some KFC at the very least. But after climbing this ladder, you get to the final rung and the confirmation that you've been doing this right is persecution. Let me be really honest with you this morning, church. I don't get it. Like I don't. I understand what it's saying. I can read the words like you read the words, but I find it difficult to comprehend how that is the last step on the ladder. Because if being blessed means to be happy, to be filled with joy, something to be celebrated, how does that coexist with persecution? In fact, it's interesting because the Beatitudes is not the only place that we read such a bold statement. It's, it's all throughout the Bible. Let me give you a couple of examples. James 1, verse 2 to 3. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. That's hard. Romans 5.3, we can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance. 1 Peter 4.12-13, and this is just the third of, of many. I won't, this is the last one I'll share. But Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you're going through, as if something strange were happening to you. Instead, be very glad. What? For these trials make you partners with Christ in His suffering, so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing His glory when it is revealed, when it is Revealed to all the world. If you're like me and you read this and you get it, but you also don't get it, can I invite you to do with this what I have done? I allow myself permission to sit in the middle of the wrestle while I journey to a place of revelation. If I could put that more simply, I'm just going to nod and smile while I allow God to reveal more truth to me over time. You know, I've never once chosen to live my life according to the Bible and been disappointed. That does not mean it's been easy, right? There's certainly been hard things associated with that. But I've learned time and time again that God and His Word can be trusted. He's faithful. He's good. He's trustworthy. And so when we get to parts of the Bible 
that we really struggle with, we have to allow everything else that we know of God, all the other promises that have come through, all the other answers to prayer, all the other truth that we can stand firm on, we have to allow that to hold us up as we journey the really difficult parts. Are we blessed in being persecuted for righteousness? Absolutely. Without a doubt, there is nothing more trustworthy on the planet than the Word of God, and yet it feels so jarring to read it because it feels so odd, and yet it's completely compatible with the goodness of God. Our challenge, church, is this, to not become tolerant or at peace with persecution, but to actually believe that in it we are blessed. That's hard. I get it, but I also don't fully get it. You know, it kind of comes across like Jesus is saying that the confirmation of your countercultural life is that you would experience persecution. Like if you're actually going to live out these beatitudes the way Jesus is presenting that we might, then we might be persecuted. There might be confrontation and challenge to our way of life. There are a lot of statements that Christians love to chuck out, um, which is cool, but quite frankly, they're not always true. I think sometimes we say things because they provide a level of solace or peace for us. The ideas sound nice, but sometimes we can veer away from the truth. We say things like this, you know, well, I've missed out on the job, but that just means God has something better lined up for me. <laughs> yeah, it just depends what you mean by better. It might be harder, might be worse pay, might be less hours, but it might be exactly what you need to develop your character while also providing for your family. Maybe this better thing that God has lined up is actually you working less in an area that requires less of you at work so that you could be home with your family more. We say things like the attack of the devil just proves you're making a difference for the kingdom of God. Well, maybe. Like This is kind of what this beatitude is saying, right? And yet it's not always true because I hate to break it to you. The enemy's going to attack us to pull us down. He's going to continue to attack us to keep us down. But this is not just linked to what you do. It's linked to who you are. But Jesus responds to this in, in John 16, 33. He says, I've told you all of this so that you can have peace in me. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows. Uh, you know, when people become Christians sometimes, and it can be maybe the fault of the one that led them there to ex explain it, like, it's going to be amazing. Like, life is just, woo! Nope. Jesus says, you're going to have many trials and sorrows, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. It is so important that we recognize that Jesus in this beatitude says, blessed are those who are persecuted, for righteousness. If your persecution doesn't come from righteousness, it might possibly just be the result of your own mistakes. You know, I've heard things like, the devil's keeping me exhausted. Maybe, but maybe going to sleep at 1am every night has more to do with it. You know, someone might say, people are against me because I held a sign on the corner of the street saying, sinners go to hell and they don't like the truth. Most people don't like the truth without love. The Word says that we should always be ready to give an account for the hope that we have in Jesus, but to do so with gentleness and respect. Standing up for righteousness and sharing the gospel must be done with gentleness and respect. You take that out, I'm afraid your persecution might not be because of righteousness, but maybe because of rudeness and abrasiveness. If you find opposition or persecution because of your own errors or lack of wisdom, it's okay. It probably just doesn't serve as much more than a reminder that we need to improve and maybe some consideration is needed. But if you are ridiculed for living to God's standards, mocked for choosing to live a God-honoring life, excluded because you hold to different standards, have a harder path to walk down because that's the path that God has called you down, I need you to know that that very persecution is confirmation that you're doing it right. When you live against culture, culture will scoff at you. 
Jesus says that wide is the gate that leads to destruction, but narrow is the road and small is the gate that leads to life and not many find it. When you live righteously and you live for the kingdom of God, it's always going to have you feeling like you're in the minority. Remember what Peter said in 1 Peter? He says, dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you're going through as if something strange were happening to you. Instead, be very glad for these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering. And when Jesus is persecuted, what does he mean? Well, that word persecuted actually means to pursue or chase. It can sometimes mean to harass. Have you ever felt pursued or chased because of your faith? It's like sometimes the moment that someone in your workplace or some other area of your life finds out that you're a Christian, they sort of come after you, right? Like they want to come at you with all sorts of leading questions. They try to catch you out, to challenge you, to expose you. They want to know what you believe, but only against controversial topics. They don't really care about foundational Christian belief. Just what do you think about this thing? And what do you think about this thing? And they can try to catch us out. These are some of the types of persecution Jesus says that the believers might experience. Firstly, he says insult which means to cast in one's teeth, which likely means to negatively speak about believers to their face, like literally to insult you to your face. Secondly, he talks about persecute, likely refers to physical abuse or imprisonment. And then he says they might falsely say all kinds of evil against you. This might refer to speaking negatively about believers behind their back or spreading rumors. Who's feeling encouraged? I came for the word, I got the word. But what does Jesus say that we should do in the face of this? I I hate to break it to you, and I promise you this is encouraging, because if it's God's word, he's for us, not against us. If it's God's word, he can be trusted. He's with us in the fire. But when we face stuff like this, what are we meant to do? Jesus actually speaks directly to it. First thing he says about facing this persecution for righteousness, he says, it's not you, it's me. He says, it's not you, it's me. Have you ever heard that line in movies? Usually it's when someone's breaking up with someone else. Like, it's not you, it's me, I'm the problem, I'm the reason this is hard. Now, it's not a breakup, but Jesus essentially comes in with the same line. You will face difficulty ultimately because people have an issue with Jesus, not because they have an issue with you. This is assuming you are acting lovingly and graciously, otherwise it might also be because of you. (laughs) Matthew 5 verse 11 to 12 says, God blesses you. When people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be happy about it. Okay, Jesus. Be very glad for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. I realize that this is much easier said than done. I mean, how do we not take it personally when someone says to us, you're stupid, you're delusional, you can't actually believe that, you're bigoted, you're intolerant, you're stuck in the dark ages. Yeah, yeah, like we've heard it all before. It feels very personal, but the issue is not with you. The issue is with God himself. Jesus gave two reasons why you might face persecution. He says, firstly, it's for righteousness. Like when you start to live righteously, people are not going to like it. And then secondly, he said, it's because you are my followers. John 15, verse 18 to 25. Jesus said this. He says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them the works no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen, and yet they have 
hated both me and my father, but this is to fulfill what is written in the law. They hated me without reason. There are many people, as you know, in this world that don't know God. And you're going to come across a lot of people that are very hostile to God. That's okay. But as ambassadors for Christ, I'm afraid we do become the representatives that they go after. But Jesus is essentially saying here, hey, take heart. It's actually me they have an issue with, not you. But because you're with me, you're going to cop some of it. When you live according to God's kingdom, those that don't actually know the love and grace of God can quite strangely be very offended by it. And as long as you're actually living to the word, this persecution shouldn't come as a surprise to you. I mean, take Abel and Cain in the book of Genesis. These guys are two sons of Adam. You got Adam and Eve. They had Abel and Cain and many other um, sons and daughters. Cain kills his brother Abel, not because he did something wrong, but because he did something right. Abel offered an acceptable sacrifice to God, whereas Cain's was rejected. This enraged Cain, which led to him killing his brother. When people live in sin, they'll become hostile towards those that live righteously. I mean, imagine being like the only honest person in class, going about your classwork and your test honestly, and everyone else is cheating for you to stand firm in being the honest one and maybe even possibly speak up against those who are cheating. Well, you better believe that's going to provoke persecution. Maybe you could work in a business where others gossip, they talk negatively about the leadership, they get drunk after work, they practice dishonesty. And for you to be the one to decline to get involved, it's going to stir up resentment. It may lead to being harassed, passed over for promotion, or even fired. But Jesus says, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. But what do we do with that? Like, how do we respond to the persecution that can feel so personal? A couple of quick thoughts. Firstly, be prepared to answer. In First Peter, it says, always be ready to give an account for the hope that you have, but do so with gentleness and respect. You've got to develop an understanding of what you believe and why. You know, when people ask you questions, even in frustration and anger, you've got a window of opportunity to speak about why you have hope in Jesus. Do you even have just a basic understanding of what the Bible teaches about salvation, about God's redemptive plan for mankind? Be prepared to give a short answer, but always do so with gentleness and respect. And I'm not here to I'm not here to judge. I'm just saying, if you don't know how to answer that, if you're like, I don't quite know what I would say to that, that's okay. We're all on a journey. But my encouragement to you is to find a way to answer that. Find out what the Bible actually says in basic form about how someone becomes saved, the goodness and grace of God, and how He has a plan for every person. If you don't know how to do that, Look up some Bible reading plans. Do the Alpha course. You can see um, Andrew or um, I know Joel and Emma Young, they read that or fill it in on the Connect card. The Alpha course goes through the basics so that you can prepare yourself to give a simple answer when these questions arise. I remember when I hadn't been a Christian long, and I know I've told this before, but I had my flatmates absolutely grilling me. They were giving me everything. And I remember just sitting calmly. I heard them out, and I gently tried to give a succinct answer. They got so frustrated. They're like, just get angry at us. But I knew that getting angry at them was not going to be effective. People are so surprised when you can face persecution with calmness and gentleness and grace. They don't expect you to be gracious towards them when they know they're not being gracious towards you. Also try to disarm the whole us first you mentality. You can sometimes feel when you're having a discussion with someone that you're on opposite ends of the battlefield. If there is anything you can agree with, verbalize your agreement. Let me give you an example. Someone might come to you and say, how can you possibly say that you don't agree with same-sex marriage? God wants people to be happy. That's a common challenge. I've, I've had that one many times. And your response might be something like, oh, I agree. Absolutely, God does want people to be happy. They mean the world to Him. 
I just believe that the way we find true happiness doesn't exist in who we marry, but ultimately in knowing God. We can find true happiness whether we're married or not. So I agree with you that God wants people to be happy. I just disagree on where we're meant to find it. When you are willing to agree with things that are agreeable, what it communicates is that you're not just being defensive for the sake of being defensive, but you're actually hearing someone out. You're willing to engage in a conversation, but you're also not willing to compromise on the Word of God. See, despite the hostility that you might face, those that don't know God need to be shown the love and grace of God through you. Surprise them with kindness and be, pre be prepared to answer wherever possible. Second other thought is this, release the need to defend God. I know we carry a lot of pressure, right? Someone asked me a question, I don't know how I'm going to answer. It, it, it's okay. You will often discern that when confronted with a challenge, it doesn't matter what answer you give, they're not going to be satisfied. A lot of the time, persecuting questions or challenges aren't looking for an answer. They're looking for a response. And while I have just encouraged you to be prepared to give an answer, it's also completely acceptable to say, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I'm not sure, but I'm going to go read my Bible and discover more because that's our source of truth. God doesn't need us to defend him. And when someone is in a state of persecuting, they have all their defenses up. And to be honest, they're probably not that interested in what the truth might be anyway. Saying, I don't know, or just politely finding your way out of the conversation might be the exact right thing to do. Words are powerful, and you don't have to feel like you've got to come up with an answer out of thin air if you've got no idea. Simply saying, I don't know, is completely acceptable. But then use that as motivation. I'm going to go and find out. I want to know next time I get that opportunity. But what happens when it's not a verbal challenge? What happens when it's not a question? What happens when it's things just like being left out, excluded, or overlooked. I'll keep this one really short with what the word says. Matthew 6, verse 26 to 30. Jesus says, look at the birds. Don't they plant or harvest or store food in barns? For your heavenly Father feeds them. And aren't you far more valuable to him than they are? Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? And why worry about your clothing? Look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing, yet Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for wildflowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, He will certainly care for you. Why do you have such little faith? LJ, you can join me on keys. Jesus says, it's not you, it's me. I know it's easier said than done, but try not to take it personally. Jesus says, it's, it's me they have the issue with. The other thing Jesus says about what we can do uh, when we're facing this persecution is keep your eyes on eternity. Man, I've heard this one heaps. And I've got to be honest, I've had an issue sometimes when I've heard people say this, because at first reading, it can kind of sound cliche, if I'm to be completely honest. It, it kind of sounds like something that Christians say to console ourselves. But Jesus is abundantly clear that those who endure and persevere through any form of persecution would find great reward in heaven. You know, we joke about it all the time among our team. They do something and, you know, we're like, your reward's in heaven. I've got nothing for you, but your reward's in heaven. It's actually true. It's not clear that there's extra reward for those that face persecution, but that this promise of peace and freedom and joy and connection with God is the prize awarded to any believer that would be faithful and see it through to the end. The consistent theme throughout the whole Bible is that difficult times produce character and resolve within us. It's this picture of diamonds being produced under pressure. You know, I said at the start that I find it hard to comprehend how persecution is something that has us feeling blessed. But the more I think about God's plan for our lives, the more I realize that without the persecution and the trials and the troubles, we could never become Christ-like. And becoming Christ-like is what a blessed life 
looks like. We recently had Darcy's mum and sister visit us from Oklahoma in the United States. It was amazing. They were here for three weeks. It was so cool to have them with us, especially meeting a little baby Oakley, who's just a couple of months old. Really special times. We laughed together. We had lots of family time. We had little adventures and we sort of made memories that we'll, we'll cherish for a long time. It was so nice having them with us. But the nicer it gets, the harder the goodbye becomes. Darcy was understandably upset when they had to fly home last week on Thursday. And for the next few days that followed, it really hurt. The hard truth about that visit from her family members is that even though the goodbyes are really hard, we can't have the visit without the goodbyes. The only way to avoid having that really difficult goodbye moment is to not have them come in the first place. But that doesn't make any sense. You can't have one without the other. We can avoid growth and development all we like and it can feel comfortable. Never being challenged, never being uncomfortable, never being under pressure. But if we actually wanna grow and produce perseverance in our life, to live our lives as witnesses for Christ, it comes with the territory of hard times. You can't have one without the other. And I think this is where we find resolution in the blessing. Yes, it's hard. Yes, we'd rather not have it. Yes, it's uncomfortable and undesirable, and yet the alternative is even more unthinkable. See, the alternative to reaching that eighth rung of the ladder is to live your life wandering, to live your life restricted, to live your life unfulfilled in all of the purposes for which God created and called you. It's the weirdest thing to say, but thank you, God, for the persecution because it helps us realise that we made it to the final rung. We accept it as confirmation that we are, in fact, living a countercultural life. And it's not an achievement to be proud of. It's not like, oh, 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 look at me, I made it. It's just kind of a different way to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. We have to consider this beatitude well. It's the one that sustains us in really dark times. You know, when Charles Spurgeon was severely depressed over the criticism that he was facing for his ministry, his loving wife printed all eight beatitudes on a large piece of paper and tacked it to the ceiling above his bed. She wanted him to know first thing in the morning and last thing at night that the righteous will be persecuted. There are no exceptions and we must remember this well. Maybe as I finish, it could be said like this. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness for they have lived such a life worthy of persecution. It is a reminder that they are on the doorstep of heaven and that they have lived a life honoring to God. The Beatitudes start with the kingdom of heaven being promised to those that are so low and realize their need to Him. And it finishes with confirmation that they progressively aligned their life with this very kingdom and their reward awaits them in heaven. Let me pray for you this morning. Father God, I thank You for Your Word. As hard as it can be, especially for those that feel like they've walked through it or are walking through it, we thank You for the persecution. Hard words to come out of our mouth, but God, we believe that You are on our side that you are for us and not against us. And even though it can be really difficult to walk through it, I thank you, God, that you are in fact with us in the fire. You enter into our world and you comfort us and you hold our hand and you give us the words to say and you give us peace in the middle of the troubled times. And we choose in faith in the name of Jesus to take upon ourselves confirmation that when we are being persecuted for righteousness, it simply confirms that we're living out the Beatitudes. We're actually living a countercultural life for the glory of God. And so I pray right now in the name of Jesus for anyone that is heavy for this, that is currently in the face of the fire, Give them peace. 
increase their sensitivity to your presence. May they know your closeness in the midst of it. And for those that feel like they haven't yet, it's not about doom and gloom, but prepare their heart for when it does come. For you were with them in that too. Your promise is that we would have hard times, but we can take heart for you have overcome the world. We thank you for that in Jesus' name.